Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We just heard the state funeral for George Herbert Walker Bush at the National Cathedral. The former president was eulogized by Canada's President Brian, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, former Senator Alan Simpson, and his son, former President George W. Bush. The former president had a long and complicated career. We're going to focus on some key moments that were pivotal to U.S. foreign policy after the Cold War. With me is historian Andrew Basevich. His latest book is Twilight of the American Century, a collection of his selected essays since 9-11. Thanks for joining me, Andrew Basevich. Glad to be with you. Um, I wonder if you would comment a little bit on the tone uh, these days. Uh, We've had George Herbert Walker Bush here celebrated for his tone of civility and compared uh, favorably to President Trump. Um, Does that uh, kind of obscure things for for his historical record? I think think it does. I mean, civility uh, appears to be the the word of the week uh, in Washington. And uh, I think you're exactly right. It is the word of the week because current president is anything but civil, and therefore uh, paying tribute to President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush is another way of kind of beating up on President Trump. And I have no objections to beating up on President Trump. That said, uh, it does distract then uh, from a necessary discussion of Bush 41's actual legacy. And we should not speak ill of the dead. Uh, that said, uh, it's important, I think, to take a balanced view of what uh, Bush 41 achieved and didn't achieve in the realm of foreign policy. He gets a lot of credit for um, managing the end of the Cold War um, in, a, in an adequate way. Um, how did you? How do you read that? Is that? Um, is, does that jive with um, what happened after um, his presidency? Well, I think I think he deserves uh, great credit for the way the Cold War ended peacefully. Although, uh, again, in this particular moment, or maybe it reflects a sort of the American-centered perspective that most of us have. Uh, you don't hear Mikhail Gorbachev mentioned. Uh, you don't hear uh, uh, Helmut Kohl. Uh, then the chancellor of divided Germany who presided over unification. He didn't seem to be getting much mention. My point would simply be that, yes, the the end of the Cold War was well managed, uh, but the credit for that goes to more than just the president of the United States. Now, when we look beyond uh, that particular moment, it seems to me that there there is reason to view Bush's record with uh, greater uh, skepticism. I mean, the other sort of big headline uh, is Operation Desert Storm, big victory, uh, liberated Kuwait, punished Saddam Hussein uh, for this act of aggression. I think most people have forgotten that in the aftermath of that victory, which was simultaneously uh, decisive and yet incomplete, uh, it was President Bush's administration that decided then to maintain U.S. forces in Saudi Arabia, maintain them because Saddam was still in power. Uh, And I think that was undertaken with very few, uh, uh, little appreciation of the implications, because the truth is uh, that that decision to maintain U.S. forces permanently in Saudi Arabia set in train a series of events that would lead to 9-11, 
and then of course beyond 9-11 would lead to other events such as the global war on terrorism, the invasion of Iraq, and so on. I'm certainly not saying uh, that that Bush 41 deserves to be held responsible for all of those subsequent developments. But he set things in motion, uh, and that needs to be part of his historical legacy. It was interesting. At the time, we were told, well, the U.S. troops are in an isolated part of Saudi Arabia. Nobody's going to mind. We know this is unprecedented, but we're going to keep an eye on Saddam Hussein, and that's, that's the more important thing. The Saudis want to do it. This is a good idea. Well, I, I think I'm not I am not sure the extent to which the Saudis wanted to do it, although it is certainly the case that the royal family uh, was uneasy about the fact that Saddam Hussein had managed to hang on to power uh, despite uh, suffering that 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 victory. There's another angle here that probably deserves to be uh, explored at least a little bit, and that is that uh, perhaps not Bush himself, but certainly senior members of the administration viewed this success in Operation Desert Storm as kind of a wedge, or perhaps uh, maybe I should say an opportunity that we had ostensibly demonstrated that we had achieved great military supremacy. And there were people in that administration, I think Secretary of Defense Cheney would be uh, one prime example of this, who felt that this, this moment, the end of the Cold War, this moment when we had defeated uh, Saddam Hussein was an opportunity for the United States to achieve what uh, you know, you know w- global supremacy uh, that we were now going to call the shots, and then in particular we, we were going to call the shots because we had this apparently I think it was an illusion that had apparent uh, 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 military supremacy, and all this of course gets put into into print in the notorious defense planning guidance of 1992, if you're looking for a blueprint of what happens after 9-11, that document from 1992, written by people who worked for Bush 41, that's a good document to go to. I'm talking with historian Andrew Basevich. His latest book is Twilight of the American Century. Coming up in a moment, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll explore taiko drumming. I want to say more about the 1992 defense planning uh, guidance document. Um, it is, uh, you know, I was just reading a piece by Zalme Khalilzad, who um, uh, people remember from the George W. Bush administration, and he was very enthusiastic about the United States not um, disarming at the end of the Cold War, not standing down, but be able, being able to get in there and you know fight more wars and dominate uh, anybody and make sure that no other uh, hegemon pops up. Um, the defense planning guidance uh, document was was really um, a very dominant document. It, it, they wanted dominance and were setting out a course to do it in the document. Well, it was. I mean, uh, we should emphasize this was a classified document and the public only learned about it because it was leaked. Uh, I think it was to the New York Times, maybe to the Washington Post. Uh, but, but the document began by saying, hey, the Cold War has ended. What now are the implications for U.S. policy? And that uh, process of, of posing questions also taking place in the immediate aftermath of Operation Desert Storm yields answers such as, hey, 
maybe we don't need to rely on allies anymore. Maybe we can use force when and where we choose to use force, not necessarily simply for defensive purposes. So, so it was a preliminary expression of ideas that are going to circle back around uh, after 9-11, when, of course, we have another Bush, Bush Jr., in the White House, and not so incidentally, some of the people involved in drafting uh, the defense planning guidance of 1992 are back in power in senior positions. Cheney is now the vice president, for example, uh, Khalil Thot, uh, who was a member, who, who was a staffer in the Defense Department in 1992, ends up being one of the, uh, a more significant figure uh, in the Bush uh, 43 administration. So we get inklings there of things to come. And to the extent that that happened on the watch of, of Bush 41, well, we have to say that uh, it, you know, it was not a particularly uh, wise uh, uh, document. It, it led to some, uh, some pretty stupid policies, at least in my, uh, my opinion. Andrew Basevich is a historian. He's a former colonel in the U.S. Army, and his latest book is Twilight of the American Century. It's a collection of his selected essays written since 9-11. Thanks for joining us and talking about the 1992 Defense Planning Guidance Document and the foreign policy legacy of George Herbert Walker Bush. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and get ready, we're going to explore taiko drumming. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm in the Jim and Kay Maybe Performance Studio with Catalina Maria Johnson, the host of Beat Latino, and we're going to get some big drumming going on here, Catalina. <laughs> really big drumming. Taiko drumming. You may not know, but we really have quite a treasure here in Chicago. You don't really have to go very far for it. We have Tsukasa Taiko, led by Tatsu Aoki, and a wonderful ensemble and a wonderful set of classes that you can take. So it's the whole package, and it's for real. It's taiko drumming from Japan in a very special and unique twist given by Tatsu Aoki. And I have Tatsu. We have Tatsu right here. Yes. And some big drums. It's great to meet you, Tatsu. Nice meeting you, and thank you for having us. I want to get a little bit of your story because it's so wild and dynamic, and you are such an artistic renaissance dude. Um, what, uh, you're, you're like a complete artistic package. You, you just don't do taiko drumming. You're a bassist. You do all these other things. Jazz musician. Yeah. Visual artist, f- filmmaker. Film? <laughs> but I think it's all kind of together. 
as a concept of expression. I mean, to me, it's really about the Asian cultural diaspora. My being part of the immigrant culture, my being part of the Japanese community, Japanese-American community, it all kind of connects together. I think that's also what makes us, Tsukasa Taiko, and my other programs that we have very unique. How did you get started with taiko drumming? Taiko drum was there when I was born, (laughs) (laughs) along with the uh, three-string lute instruments called shamisen, and also the bamboo flute, and all these instruments were in my house uh, when I was born. So I started to be gently trained probably about two and a half and three years old, and by four or five I was performing little things for the family because I come from the uh, artesian, you know, entertainment family. I think in America it's known as a geisha family, yes. Uh, (laughs) It's a downtown Tokyo geisha house that I grew up. Now, tell us about the people we have here, the group we have here. Um, This is one of the premier community ensemble that we have uh, long-standing Tsukasa Taiko members from the day one. So I got these people when they are very small, about maybe eight or nine years old, and uh-huh. now they graduated and they have a job, and you know, but still drum with us. I use them very often on my professional assignments as well. Now you've got a show coming up at the MCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art, and we're going to hear from four of you play now. But when you are at the MCA, it's lots more. Yes, yes. We have a um, sister taiko group in San Francisco. We also co-manage the contents of that. And I have friends from Japan flying in. And also I have lots of friends in Chicago from jazz community. And they all collaborate two days of the concert together. So one thing that's very interesting, I think that it's important to point out because we have had experiences here at like Symphony Orchestra of Kodo and kind of the very power drumming, taiko drumming that comes from Japan that's also performed on the same kinds of drums, these big, extremely heavy celebratory festival drums. But Tsukasa Taiko's drumming is a little bit different, um, actually a lot different. (laughs) I think some of the common ground that we can share as the origin is uh, of course, festival drumming. Then to me, because of my upbringing, it came from the theatrical stage drumming, which is uh, a different kind of a content and a different kind of context when it comes to a taiko drum. Uh, but I think taiko drumming uh, here, in general public, is more famous about this power uh, festival drumming with a large taiko which is, you know, part of our culture too. But I think our focus is kind of uh, different, uh, that we're more about the artistically generated. I don't know if the rendition is a good word, but it's originated from the festival drumming, but it's uh, geared towards the stage performance. I bet we can hear that if we listen. Can we hear like a kind of a traditional festival tune and right. then we'll do a little compare and contrast. <laughs> right. So this is one of the festival songs called uh, Yatai Bayashi.
Wow, that's super fun. Every time I see taiko drumming, I, you know, it's great. The arms are up and they're coming down to the drum that's so big. And I think I can do that. I, I, I want to get up there and smack that drum. I know that I can't actually do that. but Yes, you can. <laughs> um, in the interest of full disclosure, I take classes. Oh, yeah. Is it <laughs> easy? With Tatsu-sensei. It... No, it's not. <laughs> see, I know it's not but easy. what you're saying is very accurate. You know, with the arms going up, it's because there's a whole choreography. It's not like... You just bang on the drum, but the choreography and the timing of the choreography and the timing of the dance and the form, which are kata, they're the ones that actually then create the melody. So it's a combination of choreography and dance and rhythm and memory. That was very short, but a lot of the pieces are (laughs) very, very long. I have to say that, however, Tatsu-sensei is extremely patient (laughs) with us. But this is a very traditional kind of song, and this is a song that many ensembles will have their version of. It's kind of power festival taiko. But what uh, Tatsu Aoki brings and Tsukasa taiko bring are a different, I don't want to say level of playing, but a different sense, which is informed also by the diaspora, by jazz. Um, Tatsuoki's an amazing jazz musician, bass player, and his experience in the African-American jazz community, in the Asian jazz community, and this different sense of kind of the 70s Tokyo jazz scene that also comes through in a lot of these pieces. Let's uh, hear that one. Let's hear some of that. What would you suggest, Tatsu? First, I want to show you just a little bit of the um, kind of a cyclical festival beat. Then we will play a short song for you. I think the one that we just played, Yatai Bayashi, is uh, one of the most popular taiko ensemble song. Yet, it's still very, very formulated, right? So if you go to the real festival that played this song, it sounds nothing like this. This was more of a kind of arranged for the stage, and we do that, and many taiko groups also have their rendition of that. But this is what festival sound, taiko drums sound like here. So that's one of the examples. This is what it sort of sounds like in a variety of different neighborhoods in Tokyo where I grew up. But even within the Tokyo, the each section of the Tokyo have a different kind of a rhythmic kind of idea. So this is a song from my group in the 70s, it rendered from this idea. And it sounds a little bit different from what you hear from the contemporary taiko drumming. Here it is a song called Hayama One.
So at the MCA performance, actually, the audience will get to see a little bit of all of these kinds of styles. Yes, yes. Yeah. We would play some of the so-called standard uh, songs of the ensemble, Taiko Drum, and also uh, many of our original that come from uh, mid to late 70s Taiko in Tokyo. And uh, my practice was during the 70s, it was off mainstream <laughs> because it was already Taiko group. In Tokyo and other areas of Japan, they were doing ensemble drumming. But I think our group went the other way, <laughs> against the norm. Way to go. <laughs> That's Tatsu Aoki, director of Sukasa Taiko Ensemble. We'll be back with him and Catalina Maria Johnson in a minute with more Global Notes and more Taiko drumming. We go out here with uh, uh, Tatsu Aoki on Shamisan. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm in the Jim and Kay Maybe Performance Studio with Catalina Maria Johnson. And we're talking with Tatsu Aoki and discussing tritaiko drumming. And he's got a show coming up at the MCA on the 8th and the 9th. And the hopeful group will be there. And it sounds like it'll be a terrific event. And also there's two different events. Uh, one is Saturday night is Reduction 6. And this will kind of carry forth more the kind of avant-garde legacy, I would say, which is jazzy and includes a number of jazz greats from the Chicago area, as well as the taiko of the Tokyo 70s. I'm sure I'm here to tell you it must have been some wild times. <laughs> and then Sunday, December 9th in the afternoon, there's Taiko Legacy 15, which will give you kind of a more classic sense if you will. And we're going to hear another song, right? So we're going to hear a song called Yuyasa. And Katarina, you play this song too. <laughs> um, I'm not even going to try it right now. <laughs> is, Kat, is Catalina good? Yeah, she's been doing really wonderful. <laughs> He's much too kind. <laughs> oh, the, the, everybody in the band says you're good. <laughs> They're much too kind. <laughs> it's complicated. Um, there's the choreography, there's the rhythm, and there's memory. I mean, we're just getting little snippets, but one of the songs we heard is part of a whole suite. And I think, how many pieces are in the Hayama? Uh, Hayama is uh, eight. Yeah, and, one and, to eight. Yes. And total time is? 15, 20 minutes. Oh, yes. uh, and that's that just, is a lot of memory. That's a lot of memory. That's just one of, you know, dozens. You would feel so embarrassed if you messed up. Yeah. So <laughs> you the I one person who messes up. <laughs> you would be. <laughs> all the band people are laughing like crazy. They've all been that person. Well, there's the worst is when you're <laughs> the worst is when you're performing and the, your stick flies in the air. And there's yeah. a whole procedure. You pick it up and you bow <laughs> and you go back to your seat. So it's a great time to talk about the compositional uh, differences. One of the big differences is that I think the contemporary practice on what goes on with the taiko groups is they play a lot of patterns. So they have a different patterns to play throughout the composition. And uh, our group play these songs from the late 70s in Tokyo. We have this composition called Playthrough, which is not much repeating parts to it, you know, not much repetition of the patterns. So you kind of have to memorize from the beginning of the song to the end of the song to complete the composition. 
and also the rhythm keeper. Many of the taiko groups, rhythm keeper, just one pattern and you play it. And here our ensemble is first you have to learn the whole melody of the song. Then you have to play the accompany. So that's not really consistently one rhythm that you're playing behind it. And what's the name of the tune we're going to hear here again? Uh, this is a song called Yanagimachi. Wow, I like that one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we are into, I think, a quarter into a composition. That was into, terrific. Yeah. I like the off-kilter bits, and the, yes, yes. it was wonderful. Yeah. yeah, so I think this song, when you see them live, it really presents the difference between our drumming and the other norm. And I think one might kind of feel like, well, it's not really energetic enough, you know, but it really picks up in a different way. And that leads back to my origin of the Japanese classical music with a shamisen and lute player is that the pickup on the time is very similar to this song. It's got a groove. It yeah. swings. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Tatsu Aoki's music swings. <laughs> what are your next plans for the group? You're going to do this event. I imagine it's hard to get events like the one at the MCA together. <laughs> and then how do you keep a rhythm as a group? You know, we meet very often. And also, the majority of the portion of our performing crew, they're kind of like a family, especially this core group. They grew up together since they were like, I don't know, seven years old or eight years old, all the way to now. So it's very easy for us to actually bond ourselves that way. And also the frequency of the rehearsal. You know, we have a long rehearsal time and... 
you know, believe it or not, Katarina spends a lot of time on her <laughs> off days, you know, come to dojo, our dojo, and spend all day, actually, all day in a dojo learning. I'm not even going to say how many years, because <laughs> you're going to say that's all you've learned. <laughs> um, it's beautiful. It's complex. You know, I never used to understand why people who didn't do something well insisted on doing it. You know, it's like, well, if you can't dance, why are you dancing? You know, but um, this is the first thing that I've loved so much that I know I'm not great, <laughs> but I love it anyway. So one of the things about this community endeavor using this instrument to bring in the embracing the community is so no one is bad. You know, <laughs> whatever you play is part of the community endeavor, and, and that's also the sound of the community. So, you know, there is another set of the practice where we have to do a professional assignment, but it's also a very, very lovely community activities. Uh, where is the center of all this community activity? Where do you guys do this? Uh, our dojo is actually right by Combs Park. It's uh, uh, Clark and Montrose, ah. actually right across the street from Black Ensemble Theater. Oh, great. <laughs> I think this will be a fantastic show, and I think people will want to see Tycho drumming at the MCA with you guys. Yes. I, I think this will be awesome. There's also going to be a really amazing Japanese street musician. Again, some of these other classical and traditional arts are brought in. So Sunday you'll see Chindonya, and this is, again, an element that's very special to these performances. All right, so that's a show you guys are doing Saturday, and that is the more avant-garde show, Sunday the more traditional, and also Sunday another special workshop. Exactly, yes. right, yeah. Right. It sounds great, and there's more information at taikolegacy.com. Yes, that's where you get all the information. It's very easy to remember, taikolegacy.com. All right. Other performances, and definitely in the summer, uh, Tsukasa Taiko is a part of a lot of street festivals, so you can catch all the events and look them up online. Tatsu Aoki, it's been great meeting you, and I um, look forward to the performance. Thank you very much. I hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. We'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And tomorrow we're going to talk with the United Nations Association of Chicago. They do outreach to refugees in Kenya. They're helping build classrooms at a refugee camp in Kenya. We'll hear about that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.